and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Muncie community. I'm Kellen McPherson from Arizona. And I'm David. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's report on the Climate Action Council meeting. Then Marsha Lazarus asks Chef Germaine Wright about his business and success. Later on, Moses Nagel gives us a report from Troy Globe. After that, we invite Robbie McIntyre on the show to talk about the old Troy Railroad Station that was torn down in the 1950s. Finally, Tom Francis highlights poet R.M. Engelhart. But first, here are the headlines. John King Jr., the former state education commissioner, whose tenure in the post was marked by controversial rollout of Common Core Learning Standards, was appointed SUNY Chancellor Monday. King was also the U.S. Secretary of Education under President Barack Obama. The New York State Bar Association has filed a lawsuit to raise the pay for court-appointed attorneys in family court. The hourly, hourly rate of $75 per hour has not changed since 2004. The association says that low-income people and children who go through family court are being harmed by the lack of quality legal representation because of the pay issue. The Gazette reports that the city of Schenectady has reached a $1.5 million settlement with Crystal Schism, the window of a man shot and killed by police detectives in 2016. Police detectives opened fire on the community watchdog after they noticed he had a gun in his waistband. A previous civil trial for the damages ended in a hung jury. The city of Schenectady Fire Department is seeking more than a dozen qualified candidates to fill open position as the agency prepares to offer a civil service exam in February. Last year's test resulted in seven new hires from the 36 candidates that took the exam. The Trump organization is con- uh, was convicted on all charges in a criminal tax fraud scheme on Tuesday in New York Supreme Court. The jury found that the company criminally dodged taxes and suppressed payroll costs by lavish lavishing executives with unreported perks, such as leases on luxury cars and apartments. That's it for the headlines. For those just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad, uh, broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org or email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. In our first segment, Mark Dunley went to the Climate Action Council meet on December 5th to go over the wording in State Climate Scoping Plan, which is to be voted on December 19th. Mark Dunley talked with Reyes Sapol, Barry Pendergrass, Isaac Silberman-Gorn, Michael Richardson, Laura Falk, and Margaret Heumann. On December 5th, the New York State Climate Action Council held its last meeting before an expected vote in two weeks to adopt the final climate plan. New York Renews, Green Faith Pause, and other groups um, held signs outside the meeting to urge the council to drop 
a stronger plan. Uh, there is concern about how fast they're going to require new buildings to stop using gas. And concerns have been raised about uh, their support of hot blue hydrogen in particular, uh, but also what they call cap and invest, uh, which seems to be the controversial cap and trade program rather than uh, a carbon tax in order to raise the funds to pay for the transition um, to clean energy. We hear from a number of participants. We first speak with a member of the council. We catch up with Rhea Salter at the meeting of the New York State Climate Action Council. You know, Rhea, what are some of your hopes for the plan that's being developed by the council? Uh, my hopes are that it is the people's plan as it was designed to be, that it remains the people's plan, that it remains for the people and citizens of New York and their health and their welfare and our climate and the natural world and not the interest of the fossil fuel industry. I know some of the groups like the uh, Climate Justice Working Group have raised some concerns about the cap and invest program. Um, are any changes possible at this point, or, or do you think Kevin Invest is the way for the state to go to raise some funds to fund these programs? Uh, I think I think we'll see. You know, I think after today's meeting, you know, there may be some potential to to have some tweaks. Um, you know, it's it's uh, the Cap and Invest is moving in a. There's an opportunity to make it something that's progressive, something that's new, and isn't the type of traditional sort of cap-and-trade or market-based mechanism that just sort of creates peril for uh, EJ communities while trying to throw money at folks thinking that's going to be the panacea. So hopefully, you know, something something new, good, and progressive can come out. And do you have any advice for, say, community residents they want any impact at this point, what they might do? impact on the plan. Please, anybody who's watching, we appreciate you watching. And, uh, you know, myself and other advocates are going to do the, the most we can to both listen to folks and then let folks know what's going on. Well, thank you. Pendergrass Capital Region Interfaith Creation Care Committee. Uh, we are represented here today to speak on behalf of uh, the web of life and uh, necessity to do something about climate change so that we can have a healthy future for ourselves and our children. And do you have any impression yet of what the climate action plan is? Is it strong enough? Uh, I think there are some very positive things in the action plan, but I'm concerned um, about uh, some, you know, greenhouse gas emitting options working their way into the plan. We want to keep those out. And I also think that the, um, the uh, commission has um, not been fundamental enough in rethinking um, the way that government approvals and funding subsidize sprawl and energy waste. So I think there are many opportunities for improvements on that. And I hope that as, as much uh, as possible can get in the plan. And one last question, you know, wh why are faith community concerned about climate change? Oh, the faith communities believe that it's a moral issue, that the destruction of living things is immoral and um, the convenience of burning fossil fuels does not dis justify uh, the, um, you know, floods, fires, uh, droughts and other catastrophes that come with climate change. Thank you, Barry. Yep. Hi, Mark. Always a pleasure. Uh, Isaac with uh, Frack Action based in Troy, New York. 
Um, yeah, and we're here today to uh, push back against false solutions, including development of hydrogen, including uh, development of so-called renewable natural gas, very concerned about that, um, and really to support our allies on the Climate Action Council who have been advocating really hard over the last uh, two and a half years to give us the strongest plan possible. Well, are there any particular changes you'd like to see uh, the, the council adopt to the plan? The draft is consistently changing. We don't really have a strong sense of what the final is going to look like. We want it to be as strong as it possibly can and adequately fund climate justice in New York State. Thank you. Uh, Michael Richardson. I'm co-founder and core organizer with Rivers and Mountains Green Faith Circle. And, and what are some of the key issues that you're hoping that the uh, climate plan includes or doesn't include? Well, first of all, we want to support the Climate Act unto itself. As you all know, that the Climate Act in New York State is one of the leading climate pieces of legislation in the nation. Uh, it's been around since 2019. Uh, so here we have what many consider to be the perfect climate act. And I believe that we've put together a fairly respectable uh, implementation plan, the so-called uh, scoping plan. Uh, of course, now the important part is we have to and also come up with the funding for the implementation of that act through the legislature. So today, I think we need to, first of all, stand firm that the uh, overall plan is a good compromise and we need to keep it intact. Uh, we want to push back still against any type of false solutions, primarily that around hydrogen and biogases. Uh, and then also, I think we want to emphasize that there needs to be more attention put into frontline communities, weatherization programs and other mitigation programs that they face through uh, climate disruption. Now, the way that the Climate National Council Pound is going to try to raise funds is through something called cap and invest. Seems to be a little bit of a play of cap and, and trade. Um, any sense whether that's an adequate way to really raise the funds and, and lower emissions? Well, I don't want to speak against cap and invest. I certainly will speak against cap and trade. But if there is going to be a cap and invest, that we need to be very careful that none of that shifts over to vulnerable areas. Uh, it's easy to allow... Uh, major corporations to take the advantage and push that off into uh, uh, power plants and other generation that is uh, uh, located in uh, sensitive areas. Uh, I think that we need to focus on the bigger picture of how we're going to get the trillions of dollars put into transitioning the economy from a uh, fossil fuel-based economy to an economy that's based on renewables. And again, when I say trillions, that's not just New York State, that's the entire Northeast. Thank you, Michael. Hi, I'm Laura Falk, and I am here um, at the Climate Action Council meeting to advocate for the inclusion of the provisions that are in the All-Electric New Building Act. I think it is essential that um, buildings be electrified on a, a speedy time frame. Buildings are the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions in the state, and the more that we the longer that we build out um, new buildings that are dependent on gas infrastructure, the costlier it is going to be to convert those buildings to clean electricity. A much healthier option, uh, burning fossil fuels in homes, um, contributes to asthma, and the sooner we can get fossil fuels out of buildings, it's better for the planet, it's better for the people living in the buildings, and I am hoping the Climate Action Council will mandate a strong timeline for 
requiring new buildings to be built without fossil fuel. Well, it seems like they propose moving that timeline back a year. Is that, is that acceptable? No, no, I don't think that it is. Um, climate emergency, we are behind, way behind. Um, scientists have made it crystal clear that we have got to address the climate crisis and reduce our emissions by at least 50% by 2030. The window is rapidly closing, so we need the original timeline of um, all new electric buildings uh, by 2024 um, to be in the scoping plan. Thank you very much, Laura. Our last speaker is Margaret Human. Actually, was up uh, in court this morning for Extinction Rebellion protest a couple of weeks ago at TD Bank about stopping the financing of uh, fossil fuels. Why are you continuing to protest? Because it's still an emergency. What, what are we going to do? We got to make the banks feel bad about investing in this goddamn fossil fuels? I don't know. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. The Climate Action Council meeting was from December 5th. The vote for the state climate scoping plan will be on December 19th. Uh, we've heard Marshall Lazarus speak with Chief J Jeremiah Wright on this program before. In the last part of their interview, they talk about the, the his business model and shared tips for success. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marshall Lazarus sitting with personal chef and owner of E-Count Kitchen, Jermaine Wright. So can you talk a little bit about your business model? It's not a physical restaurant yet, right? right? Mm -hmm. So E-Count Kitchen is a personal and private chef, uh, company, brand, etc. Um, you know, the whole goal is to just make the job easier of the client. You know, sometimes when we're hosting events, when we're hosting something special, there's so much stress and planning and prepping and decorating and uh, inviting guests and making sure that the house is clean and all of these things. And then to have to go on top of that and cook, that's a whole nother process. So my goal is really to just make the client um, stress-free. So, you know, I often say, you know, just, invite your guests and we'll do the rest. And that's really it, you know? And the whole goal about that is, you know, I prepare meals. Um, it could be family uh, family style, buffet style, or my personal favorite, which is nice and intimate, uh, which is uh, individually plated. Um, we can do anywhere from one course to 10 if you wanted to, um, depending on the amount in the crowd. And again, the whole goal is to just prepare um, delicious meals, um, take some of the stress off of the client and, have their palate remember me forever. And I always say like, who cares about a business card? My plate is the business card. Um, you know, me cooking and you eating my food does the work for me. And I've, I've crowned myself self-proclaimed, <laughs> um, self-proclaimed uh, king of the 95% empty plate rate because 95% of the plates that come back are completely cleaned. Um, and I'm proud of that. Everybody can relate to that one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, whether you're a restaurant chef, personal or private chef, or a home cook, everybody likes when people enjoy their food. Um, so when the plates come back empty, it's really a, a beautiful thing. And then in, in 
addition to services. So we have the in-person um, or on-site personal chef services. In addition to that, I also teach culinary classes and cooking classes. Um, so that's to, to be booked as well. Comes with some glasses of wine, depending on the amount of people, et cetera. And then outside of that, I'll also kind of work with some restaurants locally to do pop-ups to where literally I become the chef uh, for the day or the two days or the week, or depending on how we're doing this. Um, and then also in addition to that, we have our residencies. So for personal private chef, private chef usually means you belong to a specific family or a specific client for a contracted amount of time and a personal chef is more like hey it's a one-day event kind of thing so um, I've had times where I've lived with families for about seven days um, lived on premises and was responsible for preparing breakfast lunch and dinner on the clock on the hour um, and having very little time to do anything because between cooking and cleaning for a family of 14 <laughs> is a lot of work. Um, so, you know, it, there's there's multi, multiple levels to the business. And to your point, um, the marketing hat definitely comes on. It makes it very easy to um, sell myself, sell the business. Um, and it really is, you know, people usually, they, they buy you. Um, the rest does itself. And I, and I hope that my energy, I say that energy introduces yourself before you even open your, your, your mouth. So I hope that my energy continues to radiate positivity and positively, um, just like the sunflowers on my shirt. So, you know, you talked about that you're sometimes involved with pop up events of different restaurants. And I, one of the other things I noticed on your Facebook page was the uh, NOLA event, the New Orleans, Louisiana cuisine pop-up event. I believe it was on Lark Street. Would you say that you have a particular type of cuisine that you, you feel like are expertise of yours or that you especially enjoy creating? Absolutely. So I think the interesting question, um, for me, my culinary philosophy, if you will, um, is abstract twist on traditional classics. Um, so I take the things that you don't usually like and I make you love them, or I take the things that you like and make you love them 10 times more. Um, <laughs> you know, and that really gives me my flexibility to really um, make things my way. Um, and it, it leaves room for that. When it comes to the NOLA thing, for example, you know, personally for me, I'm not a, I like to think that I, I, I take plating very seriously. Um, I think that we eat with our eyes first. Um, things have to look good before they taste good in order for us to even get to being able to try it or care to try it. Um, so it was interesting because when I did it at the NOLA night, that specific restaurant, which was Lo-Fi, um, had mentioned that they wanted easy handheld bar type foods. So my brain had trouble because I said, I'm not really a quick fry something and give it to you chef. So how am I going to do this? But then I realized that if I really just dig down into who I am, my roots, my family roots, uh, you know, ancestry, and just think about all the ways we can kind of elevate um, New Orleans, Louisiana street food, then let's do it. So I created a menu for NOLA street food, um, which was, for example, one of the things that you may or may not really find in NOLA is you'll always, not I won't say always, but well, I'll say always, you'll always find mac and cheese. Um, and it's likely you'll find crawfish mac and cheese. It's unlikely you'll find fried crawfish mac and cheese topped with a Cajun fondue and, you know, butter poached crawfish, um, you know, with Creole seeds, you know, et cetera. So that was one of the top sellers. And um, a lot of people, I was so happy and proud because a lot of people said that the food was much better and way better than the food they actually had in NOLA, um, which meant a lot to me because at that time I haven't even been. 
Um, I had only, it's just that it's in my, it's in my blood and it's in my roots and it's what I've grown up. It's what I grew up eating. Um, but then obviously shortly after about a week, no, about two and a half weeks or so, I was on a plane out there with my mom surprising her uh, for a trip. So it was just a beautiful thing, but, um, yeah, definitely the, the menu was delicious. We had a seafood gumbo, which had andouille sausage and rice and all the works, crab, um, everything that you find in traditional gumbo. We had, like I said, the fried mac and cheese, with crawfish and the fondue, Creole Cajun fondue. Uh, we also had a brioche, um, bourbon street, bourbon style bread pudding with a bourbon whiskey glaze. And then we also had, what am I missing and forgetting? Oh, we had shrimp po' boys, which is a uh, Cajun classic and NOLA um, and a classic sandwich. And it was just delicious. And um, it was a great experience. And I was I was really blown away by people's response and receptiveness to the food and the style of food. And um, I, I, I can't wait to do it again. Wow. And it sounds like you had uh, you basically sold out. Uh, the dishes sold out. So we're talking about large numbers of customers. Yep. Can you share a secret or a couple of secrets on how a chef can create such a sophisticated, you know, many ingredient dishes, but almost in a production environment? So this is when the A, a style, the analytical part of my brain kicks in. Um, I'm always thinking 10 steps ahead. Um, and that is the best advice I can give. I think, you know, it's all about prepping and over prepping. And if you think you've prepped, prep more. And if you think you've prepped enough, prep some more because, you know, People don't realize that the way restaurants work is that they may be open for dinner from six to or four to 10 or whatever, but they are prep chefs, prep cooks. The chef is in there from 8 a.m. prepping everything you can think of so that there's enough to be on the go and there's enough in the reserve tank. And then typically, depending on the size of the restaurant, there's a team who is now we're out of insert thing here. And now their job is to just continue to prepare that while you have everybody else on the line actually dropping and cooking the food on the line. So to really be seamless, you have to be ridiculously organized. You have to think ahead. You have to plan every detail, everything through. Um, and don't wait till you're there to do, even if it's something as small as cutting a tomato, you never realize how much time it, you know, you can save yourself if you prep ahead of time and make sure that they're pre they're sliced already. Um, that way, all you have to do is put them in the, you know, refrigerator or the walk-in or whatever until you're ready, pull them out, and now you're ready to kind of serve, you know, making sure that they're covered properly, labeled properly, et cetera, and you're good to go. So I would say if you think you've prepped, prep again. And if you think you've prepped well, continue to prep. <laughs> uh, yep. If folks want to get in touch with you, talk to you more about your services, personal chef services, culinary classes, how would they do it? If they want to get in uh, touch, I would say um, go straight to www.8countkitchen.com. That's the number eight, countkitchen.com. And just click Book Chef Jermaine. And what you're going to do is you're going to submit an inquiry, fill it out. That gives me a lot of pre-qualifying um, you know, knowledge to kind of get a scope uh, of the project. Um, and we just go straight from there. You can also follow me um, at main underscore OH on Instagram. You'll see a lot of food content and a lot of Jermaine content. So get to know the chef a little better and know who's going to be in your home. And then, um, yeah, hopefully uh, also, I don't know, maybe my name pops up when you're at an event somewhere for some reason. So those are the ways that you can connect with me and follow. That was Marsha Lazarus speaking with Jermaine Wright of Eight Count Kitchen. You can find two more parts of their interview at mediasanctuary.org. 
For those just tuning in, I'm Keelan McPherson. And I'm David. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. A new public art exhibit opened Sunday in Troy to illuminate the winter scene in the city. Moses Nagel spoke to some of the artists and art enjoyers about the project. You want to tell me for Hudson Mohawk Magazine what you think about the, oh, about the public art? Good. What did you think about them? What did you think they look like? Like beads? Like oh. just the bones of it. Looks like bones of what? Beads. Beads? Huh. We saw That's some cool. of the other sculptures too. Do you want to? Oh, we got a favorite? yeah. Oh yeah, what's your favorite? What would, which one did you like best? We've seen I a like couple. I like the Christmas tree. <laughs> Classic. There's I like also... the one by the, the church. Sunday evening was the opening of Troy Glow, a public art project in downtown Troy, where several artists from the region have installed their creations using light in different ways to illuminate and say something interesting about the space they're in. Adam Freeland is an artist with a piece in the exhibit as well as the artistic and technical director of Troy Glow. Troy Glow is the first light festival that we've ever had a chance to do in, in Troy. And the idea for it came after a project that I was involved with in 2016 in the area called Breathing Lights. And that was a big lighting project that put an effect in uh, about 200 vacant buildings in the area. And it was a big undertaking. All three cities were involved, lots and lots of people, lots of layers to it. But afterwards, a lot of the cities, I think, got a sense of the reward from it. And some of them had reached out to certain people on the team about what to do next. And uh, Judy Gilmore, who's the curator on, on Troy Glow now, came up with a public art plan for Troy and I think the first thing on the list was to do a light festival. Most light festivals are an open call situation that's often nationally or even internationally in scope. And so normally people who already work in light, uh, you know, they've got their stuff ready to go. And so they apply and say, I, you know, here's the thing I want to put in. And that's how it often the, the curation of those kind of uh, projects go. But in our case, we wanted this to be a regional endeavor and that meant actually teaching some artists how to incorporate light into their practice. So that made this quite different because, I mean, a few of the artists we worked with to some degree had worked in light, but either they hadn't or they'd never made art that went outdoors. And so there was like a real educational component for each of the artists that were involved. How did your piece, which is displayed on Broadway and Franklin Alley, come about? What happened was the arts center in the capital region who, who spearheaded this endeavor, the director, Liz Reese, reached out to me and said, hey, we're interested in doing this and we'd like you to be a part of it in some ways. 
And so I had to sort of determine what role I would play, but we decided to do a prototype project to sort of like figure out working in, with the city and working in the downtown area and everything. And so I was able to kind of envision some things ahead of time, but when it came time for this iteration of it, they had drawn up a map. I think the business improvement district was involved and said, we really want to draw attention to a particular part of the downtown area. So we'd like the projects to be tightly grouped in this area. And we would like Adam's piece to be on this main street. And that street is great. But the first idea for a project I had, it just wasn't even possible. I wanted to anchor something the length of the block, but it just requires like all these logistics to fall in place and it wasn't possible. So then I realized I had to centralize the project to one location. And for, you know, as an artist, like often you have certain like references that keep coming up in your research. And one that kept coming up in mind was, you know, signage that's like a whole bunch of lit or non-lit signs in, in a particular place. And there are a couple locations in the world where this is really prominent. Tokyo, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, like where you get this beautiful cluster of signage. And I thought, well, wouldn't this be kind of interesting? I mean, there used to be so much of a different type of signage in Troy, this, but I wanted to harken back to sort of a 50s, 60s era of early illuminated signs. And so I began just coming up with a design of a series of of, of shapes that were pretty prevalent for signage and figuring out how to sort of put them in one place so they created a little bit of a density. But of course, mine didn't really require any content. <laughs> so the piece ended up being called Empty Sign. So it's a series of eight illuminated shaped light boxes that are mounted to the corner of one downtown building. This was really different than the way that I normally work. So I found myself in a similar position of a lot of the other artists where even though it was something like what we'd done before, there were many parts about it where we're like, oh, this is completely new. And I don't normally work with anything that has a light effect running through it very often. In this case, we had all these boxes and I was like, well, what do I do with them? Like what happens with them? And I have a friend who creates scores for film and I decided to sort of sit down with him and pick his brain and say, what would, what if there are eight signs, they're kind of eight components what could kind of happen over time? And so we started coming up with this visual score. And the score just has a very simple narrative arc in which all the signs seem to be operating independently in the way they normally would if you were in a dense urban area and each sign was trying to get your attention. Uh, but then slowly over time, they actually start to fall into synchronicity with one another. And then they go through this sort of pattern of intensity of working together and then afterwards, it starts to slow down and they start to fall back into their individual rhythms. And then um, the cycle starts again. So one other piece that's on the Art Center that's quite interesting is a piece by Adam Tinkle. I think it's called Troy Farallon. He kind of created a, a version of a sort of abstracted, glitchy digital town square clock. And it's just kind of a circle that rotates within this kind of like field of feedback in a way. And, you know, it, it definitely feels like something from a little bit of a different world or a different time. And then every hour on the hour, it starts chiming, but the chime has kind of a feedback of its own. And the clock text starts coming up all in front of the clock, like reminders in a way, like real, like uh, 
practical reminders, other ones that have to do with something more kind of emotive or cerebral or psychological, but a lot of them have to do with light, getting like your a dose of light for the day. And it's kind of a beautiful thing. Like it really integrates well with the architecture. On Sunday, standing at St. Paul's Church on 3rd Street, I ran into Lydia Kern, who is the artist who's installed her piece, Efflorescence, there. That word means to bloom. The inside, it kind of looks like quilted stained glass. So my process started by collecting plants and flowers that were grown in the capital region on nature walks or like bouquets from the Albany co-op that were grown by local farmers here. And I had a giant flower press in my studio and um, I pressed all the plants and then I used vinyl fabric to sew, hand sew all the flowers in place. And then I poured boat resin over the the quilt. So those are um, those are real flowers and plants yeah. all embedded in the resin, and it looks like stained glass. Kind yeah. Of, right? mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it's really too. fitting to put it in the churchyard, right? Was yeah, that a yeah, purposeful I, I, choice. Yeah, I usually do like a more of a rounded top, but I made it in line with the architecture of the building. And if you look at some of those like. Um, wooden shapes at the top there yeah. are echoed in, in some of this and I'm into medieval manuscripts and the way that like this shape um, the holes in the piece echo some holes in those historic documents too and so yeah that's, that's awesome that's beautiful thank you. What do you I don't know do you have any thoughts about public art on a whole or anything like that that's yeah. being a part of this um, I love public art because I think it's a really generous art form. Like it's given to everyone and you don't have to walk into a gallery to see it. And I do love the way it like just changes the environment. And I, I love that you don't have to be an art person per se right. to go experience it. And I think that's like the land too, you know, like the land and the wildflowers that are in this piece offer themselves to everyone as well. And it's like a unifying aesthetic and usually stained glass, like, the the light is, the way stained glass is made, when light goes in, they're only illuminated if you're on the inside of the church. So I wanted to flip that and have it illuminated for everybody out here. As people wandered by, I asked one passerby for their interpretation. Well, it could be leaves, or it could be eyes. But apparently, it kind of looks like a body, and then there's two eyes up there. So, like... A bug, maybe, with eyes not on the body. The Troy Glow installations stay up into January around downtown Troy. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagy. Um, If you look at it, counting the orange, it kind of looks like a shield. Yeah, I can see that too. Cool, thanks. So it could be a shield. Moses Nagel also reported on the installation of Troy Glow. You can hear that at mediasanctuary.org. For more information on Troy Glow, go to artscenteronline.org. Now we bring you a new series about history. This week, we are speaking with Robley McIntyre of Troy Brick. Hello, Robley, and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Radio. Hi, how are you? Hi. You have an interest in Samuel Wilson and Troy Brick and also an interest in the Troy Union Rail Station. What... Where did the, that interest generate in your life? Well, I'd say I'm a history buff regardless. Um, and it 
Troy is a great place to be a history buff because so much has come and gone and come and gone and come and gone. I mean, we could the train station kind of gets me fired up um, a little bit because it was part of uh, the wreckage of urban renewal in downtown Troy in the 50s and 60s that left 15 empty acres in the heart of downtown. Mm. Um, so I'd just like to talk about it. If you've got any questions about it, I'm happy to talk forever, really. Uh, so for our listeners who may not know, can you tell us a little bit more about the Troy Union uh, Rail Station in the Troy Railroad? I sure can. Okay, so the first railroad station built in the United States was built in Albany um, in 1830. In 1831, Troy built the second railroad station and it was called the Troy house and it was down on river street down of down where green Island bridge is. And we chugged along with that. There were about 12,000 people living in Troy at that time. And, um, the city just grew exponentially the civil war, the, the things we made here, the steel, the industry we had, and we needed to move stuff around. And even now trains are the best way to move things around. They are, uh, efficient, they have fewer emissions, so and they still move about forty percent of America's cargo around the country. So they're they're really practical in that way. But we had so much going on here, so much manufacturing that we needed to be able to get our goods out. And so train stations and train tracks and all that just really blew up in America at this time. It helped us settle the West. It was really important to move stuff around, like I said. So the the first station um, was kind of a junker and people were populating more. So they built another station right down there on River Street. And uh, that was the first Union station. And in May of 1862, a spark from a train shot off the train and hit the Green Island Bridge, which was wood at the time. So if you can imagine... That wasn't so great. And the <laughs> bridge burned. <laughs> so did the train station. But we happened to be having crazy winds, Santa Ana kind of winds. And it blew the sparks all over town and burned a lot of the city. 670 buildings burned down in 1862. But because the wind was blowing stuff around, it was kind of a hit and miss disaster situation. So like the bar that we have, Footsie Magoo's, that building was built in 1809 and did not get uh, burned in the fire, but two doors down, that whole block went. So it was really um, capricious in its nature, that fire. And so after that, we knew we needed another station, and we moved it away from the river and started uh, and built a station on 6th Avenue. And you can see the footprint of where these stations were now, because from really from underneath Hoosick, all the way down to the bottom of the park where the Italian Community Center is. Now, there was the Stanton Brewery at the time, but the rest of that stuff was really where the train station became. Now, we had a train station there until 1900, and in 1900, we got um, kind of big for our bridges and wanted it to be beautiful, so we built this massive 400-foot station. Now, that's that... Um, station was about 33 yards bigger than a f modern football stadium mm. so it was huge and uh trains came down it was it, that station that union station that went up 
It was built by 1903. It's the one they tore down in 1958. That station was revolutionary in a bunch of ways. First of all, the guys that uh, designed the station were the same guys who ended up working on um, New York City's Grand Central Station. And Troy had the first station that you used to have to go catch a train or load a train in a big shed. And that's the thing that burned down by the river. And when they rebuilt the station, they did a lot of underground subway work. So there were these beautiful pathways under there that you could go out and then rise up out of the ground and be on your individual platform, kind of like we see now. And when you did that, so the, the station was very beautiful. It was a bow arts uh, column design. It was a colonial revival station and full of marbles and because travel at that time had become really luxurious. The thing, you know, there weren't any cars and the railroads not only moved goods like they do now, but they moved people. And a lot of towns around really relied on it. When In 1910, I have a paper here from 1910, and there were 130 different passenger trains arriving and departing from Troy Station every single day. Can you imagine that today? No. I mean, <laughs> no, you could really go anywhere. I mean, they, these trains, if I look now, okay, you could go to Mechanicville, Stillwater, Skyderville, Glens Falls, Lake George, Saratoga in 35 minutes. Mm. Within an hour, you were in, you know, you could be in uh, all over Hudson, all the way down. Um, you can get to Maine. You could get to Massachusetts. And the the beauty of that were things, let's just think about Bennington now. If you were able to hop on a train and take the 25 minute ride and you'd land in Bennington, what are you gonna do? You're gonna have a little walk around, you're gonna have a little shop, you're gonna see a friend, you're gonna get back on the train and you're gonna come home. So we have lost that and we lost that because of cars, not because they tore down the station. Um, cars really, roads and cars made it easier for a person to move around because you know, you can go to Bennington now, you can look at all the Leafs, you can drive around, you can go all, all the way out to Wilmington if you want. You can do whatever you want in your car and you're on your own. But back in the heyday of our Union Station, travel was elegant. People got dressed up. <laughs> you went all over on these things. I mean, you could go to New York City for lunch and just walk right back down onto River Street. It's just so cool. Probably what what led the city planners to make the decision to take down the Union Station? Uh, I wasn't there for those meetings, but I think it was just some wrong thinking. <laughs> there, there was a lot going on in America. Things were shifting. Um, there was an there was a big push. People were moving into the suburbs, so fewer people were doing that kind of travel. We all were getting our cars. We had good jobs. So we were, we were, the roads were improving and we started traveling that way. I think, I think just, it just kind of grew out of fashion and the city planners were stuck with a downtown with a lot of the buildings looked like crap there. You know, they were broken windows. And one of the fun things about this train station, like if you stood right now and you stood at the police station on 6th Avenue and you pointed your snoot toward Congress and Ferry, where they built those city station apartments, they're on a curve. And if you look there, that's an old train tunnel. And there's gossip that I've heard that there's actually trains buried under there mm -hmm. still. 
So the fact is that that the train tracks were in the city. People grew this town populated around this train system. So if you go out into the world and and the internet and start to really look, if you look at what was going on with our train tracks in 1930, even the you have got people walking out their front doors, sidewalk, and then the train is right there, cars right there up against the train. It was not like we have Amtrak today. The trains are separate from us. These trains were in town. They came through South Troy, through, you know, they were on Adams. I mean, they, they, they were right there in the middle of the city. You'd walk out your front door and you could touch a locomotive. Uh, is it possible in the future to see the Troy Railroad come back to Troy or? Yeah, I, I think it would have to be rethought. Certainly you, I don't, I don't know with, uh, I'm going to be politically correct about it, but with the foolish men of the way people act, it, you couldn't really have the trains down in the streets anymore. It's not safe. You know, even back in the day, you heard tons of stories of kids getting maimed and, you know, falling under the tracks and, and things like that. So I don't, not in that way. It, it would be great. I mean, of course, we've got our Amtrak that runs to New York from Rensselaer. It, I, I think it would be great. I, I don't know how we, I don't know how we do it, where we put it. Um, could you build a corridor that was up along the Hudson? It's, it's not for me to de- decide, but I, I'm not sure we travel like that. Do we, do we, the thing, the thing that, the thing that trains have really evolved into is cargo movers. You know, there's no better way to move stuff from place to place. Um, people movers, maybe a mm-hmm. fancy train with a sleeping berth. And I don't know, you could dream, you could really dream about anything, but what would that building be if it hadn't been raised? That that's another question. What, what, what kind of conversations mm-hmm. should we be having? Could we have been having at a time where they were really trying to modernize downtown and when they started that are like 15 acres, that's, that's a lot of land. If I had a plot of land like that, I'd, I'd be happy running around with my horses and stuff. It's a, it's a lot of, um, a lot of space taken up by buildings that came down that were brick and solid and beautiful that could have been repurposed. And in, you know, the Gilded Age came here because we have 700 intact Victorian buildings. What if the other 15 acres was here? What kind of opportunity would that be for Troy? That's the thing. I, I really am talking about refurbishing, not pulling down, especially brick buildings, especially beautiful brick buildings like that big. But they were sitting. And so what as a city planner, what what do you do when you've got, you know, 200 derelict buildings and people don't seem to want everybody's moved into the suburbs? What, what do you do? You let them rot? You tear them down? It's it's a great question. Rob Lee, you've raised some critical and important questions for us, for our listeners, and for the people of this community. Not only Thank is it a question of, of what what could have been done, but what do we do to envision the assets of the city today and on into the future. And we thank you so much for sharing your, your information and knowledge and, and concern for that history. Thank you very much, Rob Lee. You're welcome. We hope to have you on in the future. I would like to be on. Let's get a museum. Can we have him? Troy have a museum? We could have put yes. that in the old train station. Yes. There we go. <laughs> okay. Something to work on for the future. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Peace out. We extend our appreciation to Robley McIntyre. Thank you so much. Tom Francis speaks with R.M. Engelhart about political poetry, 
the post-pandemic art world, and other related matters. We will also hear Engelhart read his poem, Degeneration, recorded in 1965. R.M. Engelhart started sharing his words at local open mics in the early 90s, and has since been a driving force in keeping poetry and spoken word alive and well in the area. He has hosted a number of readings and events over the years and continues to welcome writers new and old to the stage. In this clip, Engelhart reads his poem, Degeneration, at the Borders open mic on January 25th, 1995. This poem was recorded for the CD, Volume, a compilation of Poets Live, that was produced by Mary Panza and Steve Clark, chronicling the poetry scene at the time at such venues as the QE2, Margaritas, and Borders. This poem called Degeneration, which is pretty much what X Generation, I think, is about. Dead in the water is a one-dimensional empty sky, the dream of the cynical demigod looking for his ticket to some lost paradise. And he says, Zen is dead, Zen is dead, hear my screaming, Zen is dead. The wolves out at the gates, the taxman is at the door, the anger must equal the silence, the silence must equal the score. You owe us one more, you owe us one more, you owe us one more, one more, America. It was written, ironically, in the so-called angst of Generation X. It was one of those poems which was sort of a an anthem kind of piece. It was something, you owe us one more, you owe us one more, America. With such a political poem in the 90s, I asked about how poetry can be used as a tool to protest and for social justice today. I see it as positive change. I see it as your words do matter. When you write a poem, when you put your thoughts out there into the universe, so to speak. And also that has to do kind of with mysticism or Wicca or whatever you want to call it as well. You're putting, you're putting your thoughts, you're putting a part of yourself out into the world. That's your protest. That's your way of trying to influence and to help make things better, to heal them. That's what you're doing. Anger sometimes, however... You really can't avoid in a poem. If you are saying something against, well, certain political parties or whatever, yeah, it's going to be there. But it's your way of guidance. It's your way of making the world you see here in your head better. Poetry is something where it's its own form of protest. And if you use that power of those words, you can make a difference, I believe. Over the years, Engelhardt has shifted his focus from the politics and angst of the 90s, and I asked him about the changes and themes of his work. I'm not completely active as a political poet. I am pretty much just who I am. I'm into uh, 
mysticism, Native American uh, practices. I'm also into writing poems of different sorts and experimenting with poetry. And that's always been something that I've, I've done. But you get me mad sometimes, like certain orange individuals out there, or people I know being put in jail for things they haven't really done, so to speak. Then you see me get political. As we emerge in a post-COVID world, what does the landscape look like for the arts? All of a sudden, we're in a new age, and we just got through a crippling disease of a couple years that basically disabled every scene. Music, poetry, art, everything. So people, now that they're able to get back out, all of a sudden, they're eager to get back out and they want to share their work because it's part of them. It's something that they feel that they have, just like you and I do. We don't know exactly what moves us to say, well, you know, I want to get on stage and read read some words to people, but it's it's something that we enjoy and we were meant to do. Simple as that. Last year, Rob started a new series at the Fuse Box called Invocation of the Muse. What was the motivation for starting up a new event in the space that was once the famed QE2? And were they looking to capture lightning in a bottle twice? Well, I got thinking around, it was already during COVID. Um, Took a break like everybody else, forced break. And, uh... Even before that, I was like, well, do I really want to start up an open mic again? Um, And I said, well, what the hell? I've done all these open mics in the past. I really enjoy promoting them. I enjoy meeting people. Yeah, I'm going to try again. And that just happened to uh, center and coagulate, so to speak, if that's the word, with the reopening of the fuse box with uh, my friend Traj who reopened that place, an old friend of mine. And uh, so we tried it there, but, and that was of course the QE2. And it, well, like we were talking about before, things change, didn't, didn't work there. And we both sat down, we talked about it, me and Traj. And we said, there's something here that's different. Years ago, maybe because it was the late 80s and the 90s, that was something that worked there. For some reason, it didn't. Well, we thought that maybe we could bring back what was the spirit, what was the original readings. Not in the same way, because I have done readings there previous, like School Night, but since COVID ended, and bars were reopening, we thought that starting Invocation of the Muse there would really kick off, that people would be in droves to want to get out of the house and read poetry. Apparently, that wasn't the case. Maybe they weren't ready. It was early in the, you know, decline of the COVID. Uh, So 
I waited about a month after I decided, and I still worked with the fuse box and I still um, helped set up events with them. After giving it a few months at the fuse box, RM decided to look for a new place to host his monthly open mic and he found Lark Hall. I was like, well, maybe I need a different type of place. Something that is just feels, you know, and I'll know that when I go into the place. And I thought about Lark Hall. And Lark Hall was putting on regular out regular shows and everything, and people were going. And I asked Jennifer Miller, who owns uh, Lark Hall, I'd like to try, you know, I'd like to try a couple poetry readings there, see if that works. She was very supportive and into the idea, her and her husband, Justin. And uh, next thing you know, we took invocation of the muse there. And it's, we've been getting good crowds ever since. And uh, it works there. And I think it's because the building itself, there's something about the place and its past. Um, it was a place for suffragists. It was also, uh, over the years, a ballet. It, it was a theater, basically, and still is a theater. And the way you sound on that stage and just, you're in a comfort zone. There's something about the place. So we found home. Aram Engelhardt is an American poet, writer, and author who over the last 25 years has published several books of poetry and has been published in many journals around the world. In 2000, he and I created Albany Poets and a year later held the first Albany WordFest. Currently, he lives in upstate New York with his wife, Callie, who's a writer, photographer, and artist. Rob hosts Invocation of the Muse at Lark Hall on the first Monday of every month. <laughs> For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. You've just been listening to Tom Francis interview political poet R.M. Engelhart. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Kellen McPherson. And I'm David. Our engineer is Sina. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Marsha Lazarus, Moses Nagel, Tom Francis, and our two hosts, Kaylin McPherson and David Moore. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand on our website on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. And just remember, radio is not dying, and it continues to grow. Until next time.